take your Bibles, um, your apps. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. And turn it to the book of Zechariah. That's, that is in the Bible. It's uh, the next to last book of the Old Testament, the next to last um, book in our Minor Prophet series. We're going to finish up next week with uh, Malachi. So if you're, having, if you're having difficulty finding it, there's an easy way to find it. If you know about the New Testament, you go to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and you hang a left, you go two books back, and Zechariah is there. Now, uh, we'll talk about this a little more in just a moment, but Zechariah is the longest of the Minor Prophets. Um, and so they're called minor, not because their message is minor, but because they're shorter. And most of them are two to three to four chapters. But Zechariah clocks in at 14 chapters. It takes you about 35 to 40 minutes to read the whole thing. Um, it's the longest of the minor prophets and one of the most obscure of the minor prophets. And we'll kind of talk about that in a moment as well. And I want to start today, though, with a story that reminds us of a important truth in our life. And this is the important truth I want us to remind us of, and then we're going to tie this into our message today, and that is this, that it's never the wrong time to do what God has called you to do. Like, it's never the wrong time to do what God has called you to do. I've got a picture of a lady that I want to put up on the screen, and um, this lady has gone to be with the Lord now, but this is Lois Prater. And this is Lois Prater, um, standing in an orphanage that she helped to start um, holding one of the kids in the orphanage. This orphanage is in the Philippines, and she retired from working at this orphanage when she was 89 years old. So she worked in this orphanage until she was 89 years old. Now, here's a story about Miss Lois. Miss Lois Prater was born as um, Lois Seacrest, she was born to a pastor, uh, and to a pastor's family. Her dad was a pastor. And around the age of 15, she thought, man, I really feel like I'm supposed to go to the mission field. I feel like I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to go. That's what God's called me to do. And uh, I, I want to go. She specifically wanted to go to either India or Africa uh, to help with people that were in poverty in those places. Um, and so she began to live her life that direction. But before long, she had some other things in her life take precedence over that calling. And when she was in her early 20s, she married a man um, who was a farmhand and a, a good man when she married him. But as his life developed, he um, turned into a heavy drinker, an alcoholic. And he was a man that did not treat her well, wasn't always the best husband, I don't think physical abuse, but wasn't the best husband, one of the most thoughtful husbands. And those plans of being a missionary got derailed. Her husband eventually came to the Lord, quit drinking, witnessed to all of his friends, but it was late in his life, and he died in 1988 at the age of 80. And Ms. Lois, after his death, began to think, maybe you ought to think about that missionary thing again. And so, at the age of 76 years old, Ms. Lois began taking mission trips to the Philippines. She started back and forth a couple of times, and then when she was there one day in her place staying, where she stayed, somebody came and knocked on her door when she was 78 years old and said, we think you were supposed to start an orphanage here. She went home to Seattle, Washington area, sold everything she had, and she moved to the Philippines where she started an orphanage at 78 years old. 
She ended up taking in, um, by the, today it's still there, it's still there. She is not. She has passed away. She stayed there, retired at the age of 89 from her job she started at 78. Um, it's only, she only, she's only did it for 11 years, right? That's a, she could have, it's a, a little bit of a slacker there to just do a job for 11 years. And so, um, it's still a viable orphanage today. She went back home and lived the last 10 years of her life with her family because her health was fading. But I just was thinking about her because when you hear about people called to missions and going in and like, man, it's time to go, we do emphasize a lot those stories of people that when they're young, they feel the call and they go. But Ms. Lois reminds us that it's never too late. It's never too early. It's never the wrong time to follow God's plan. And what the book of Zechariah is about is that God comes to his people who have come back from being in exile, that have been defeated. We talked about last week with Haggai. They don't have the, the temple built yet. They're kind of living kind of just kind of a normal life day to day, but they're really not in touch with what the Lord wants them to be doing. And Zechariah basically comes to them and says to them, you have a choice to make today. Are you going to follow the Lord and what he's called you to do, or are you not? And there's never a wrong time to answer that you're going to follow the Lord. I looked at some things doing research this week, and one of the things that kind of came up as a consistent theme was that people called Zechariah the, the book of the second chance. Now, more so for the nation than like for Jonah. You remember Jonah, right? He was kind of a book of a second chance because God came to him and then he said no and then he eventually said yes. But the book of Zechariah is more for the nation. But as I read about it, as I thought about it, I thought, no, that's not a good title for this book because this isn't their second chance. This isn't their third or their fourth or their fifth or their sixth or their twelfth or their 280th or their 6,412th chance. And if it were my life that needed a second chance, if I was only given a second chance, I would have been out of it a long time ago. Zechariah is the book of multiple chances, but it's a book that God reminds his people, I'm giving you another chance, but that chance to turn and repent may not always be there. And so you have a decision to make. Like I said, Zechariah is one of the, um, it is the longest of the minor prophets. It's also one of the most confusing of the minor prophets, which means it's one of the most neglected of the minor prophets. It's got some of the fewest things written about it, sermons preached about it, discussions and Bible studies on it. You got to want to do a deep dive into scripture to find yourself studying the book of Zechariah. And I can attest this week, I've studied it, I've looked at it, I've read through the 14 chapters. And as I have, I've noticed that there's lots of weird kind of stuff happening in there. How does that relate to that? And why is that there? And so here's what I want to do today. I want to focus in on a verse in the first few verses of the whole book and then give you an outline of the book as a whole and come back to that verse again. Zechariah chapter 1 starts this way. In the eighth month, oh, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechai, son of Edo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. That's a good way to start, isn't it? God was mad at your ancestors. So tell the people, 
This is what the Lord of armies says. Just so you know, a lot of the the prophets use the phrase Lord of armies. That phrase, basically, there's some discussion about what it means or whatever, whether it's the armies of earth or whether it is the heavenly host, which you'll see translated some places. The point of it, whether it is the armies of the earth or the heavenly host, is that God's in complete control. Don't worry about the other armies that are out there because God's behind it all. He says, return to me. God says, return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. If you come to me, I'll come to you. And then he says, don't be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. He says, all the people back then, all the people in the good old days, like around this time, there were people in Jerusalem like, man, I remember what the temple used to look like. Man, it was so good back then. Man, we could just go back to where we were. If we could just be where we were. If we could just act like we did back then. If we could just have what we had back then, back in the good old days. And God says through Zechariah, the good old days weren't good. Aren't you glad nobody ever pines for the good old days anymore? Back when it was good, like nostalgia isn't a thing anymore. That's not true, right? We all kind of have this time period, man, if it was so, life was simple, life was easy. And what God reminds the people and what God would remind you and me, it's never been simple and it's never been easy. And it only feels that way because you're not there. He says, listen, I sent prophets to them and I said, turn from your evil ways. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. He says, they didn't listen. And he goes, and where are they now? Where are those ancestors of yours? They're they're dead. And the prophets that I sent, they're gone. But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded overtake your ancestors? What he basically says to him is, listen, I gave him a choice. They chose incorrectly. They're gone, but my word remains forever. And says, as the Lord of the armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So here's the point of the book of Zechariah. Then we're going to kind of delve. We're going we're to have to dig deep a little bit today, okay? So the point of the book of Zechariah is that God comes to the people that are living in Jerusalem. They haven't rebuilt the temple. They haven't reinstituted the the religion. They're not really following the Lord. They're not following his plan at that moment. They have come back from exile, but they really haven't restarted their lives. They're kind of living a normal kind of life, day to day, living it out without God's power, without God's presence, without the reality of their relationship with God being forefront in their lives. And he comes to them and he says, you've had time, you've been here, you've settled in, make your decision. Are you going to follow me? Or are you going to be like your ancestors and decide you don't want to? And if you don't want to and you walk away, just know what happened to them will happen to you. But the choice is yours. The reality is God still stands before us on a regular basis and basically looks at you and me in the midst of our lives that sometimes get overcomplicated and over, um, overscheduled and overworried and overdone. And he says to us, make a decision. Are you going to follow what I have for you? Or are you going to go your own way? The same decision that stood before the people of Zechariah stands before us even today. Am I going to do what God's called me to do? Am I going to do what I know is my role, my plan, following what I want to do? Or am I going to follow what the Lord wants? 
And in the book of Zechariah, the way he sets it up, he says, now I just want you to be aware, that's your choice. Um, choose this way or choose that way. But understand, there are consequences to your decisions. Speaking of nostalgia, anybody like those choose-your-adventure books when you were growing up? Anybody? All right, all right. How many of you would, would read it through? Let me just see hands again, all right, because I, like, I saw some like fly. All right, how many of you would like read it through, and then you would read it through, and like, really, man, man, I'd choose my ways, but then you would go back and see how it changed differently if you went different directions? Anybody? We got three of you. Good, all right. Um, other was like, I got through the book. What was the point if I didn't do that, right? But there were consequences to your decisions. And our life is a choose-your-own-adventure in some ways, but the problem is we can't go back and reread if we don't like what happened once we make a decision. And he says to the people of God, here's your choice. And so then the book kind of flows from there. And so from there, there are eight visions in the next six chapters that all kind of strange names. There are two sermons that come in chapters 7 and 8. And then there are two prophecies that come in chapters 9 through 14. And so you have eight visions and two sermons and two prophecies. And sometimes you wonder, like, how in the world do all of these kind of mix together? And what we realize when we begin to look at them is even though these eight visions are a little strange, I mean, when you just look like, for instance, if you look through, if you have an NIV Bible and you look at the headings, you know the headings that tell you what's coming? Like, it's, it sounds almost like a, like a bad book of poems, right? The man among the myrtle trees and four horns and four craftsmen and the man with the measuring line and clean garments for a high priest and gold lampstand and two olive trees and the flying scroll and woman in a basket, Right? And you're like, what in the world does that have to do with my life? Like when I'm reading, when I'm opening my Bible and I'm looking for devotional material, my first thought is not, man, I hope there's something about woman in a basket today to really help my life, right? Or I was really hoping that the flying scroll would help me. But as you look at them overall, it helps us when you kind of get their structure. And here's something we have to understand. There is some part of this message that is lost in translation, that we don't quite understand. How many of you here have been in a foreign country at some point in your life? Me, right? And how difficult is it, especially if you don't know the language, to communicate with people? Of course, the American way to try to communicate with people is just to slow down and get loud. And that doesn't help, right? That doesn't help. One of the things when we go to, to Brazil, um, when I've been to Brazil, one of the things that I've been asked to do every time I've been in Brazil is to speak at some sort of group, in a, usually in a church on a service that I'll be the preacher for the day or for night or for service or for a celebration service. And we always have an interpreter with us. And they, they always give you the best interpreters. They give the best interpreters to the people they don't trust or they're worried about what they're going to say because the interpreters can clean all that up. They always give me the best interpreter. I don't know what that means about what they think about me. But even in that moment, like, you know, I just, I get into preaching and I'm preaching and you don't, you can't think, I wonder how this is going to translate to a Brazilian audience when it's interpreted. Like you can't, otherwise you should start thinking it's a weird way to speak when you speak and then somebody else speaks and you say two words and they talk for two minutes and you're like, that's not what I said. I don't know how you did that. Like, it's just kind of a strange dynamic. But I always, and I have, I have some of the, I've had some of the best. Um, some of you have met Gil. Gil has been here, um, has been um, 
is a part of our lives because of Brazil. And he has interpreted for me numerous times, like in public, in gatherings. And there are still times, Gil and I have, Gil knows English really well. There are still times when I will say something that he just looks at me and says, I can't translate that. Like, I, I, like one time I was there and I talked about cornbread. And he was like, they are not going to understand how that could be good. Um, and yes, that probably wasn't a wise thing to talk about cornbread in Brazil because they don't know. But he's like, they're not going to understand that. I said, well, what did you just tell him? He said, I told him that you said something really tasty, but it would not make sense to them. So just laugh and act like it was good. And I said, oh, I, need, I need Gil up here sometimes for y'all just to laugh and act like it was good, right? And so things get lost in translation. And some of these ideas that are, are just so distant from us that we're not going to fully understand them. And so I don't want to zoom in. I want to zoom out. And I want to show you what I think is happening in these visions that can help us today. And here's what I think is going on. They are building to a climax that happens in the middle, and then the rest of it comes off the edge of that. And so when he has these eight visions, he says, I need you to choose this day. Remember, that's the before them. Choose whether you're going to follow God or you're going to follow your ways. Remember, your ancestor chose wrongly. It's your choice. Here it is. And then he starts eight visions. And the eight visions build to a climax in the middle, and then they come off the side. Now, most stories we tell build toward a climax at the end, right? Like the final battle in all the Marvel movies are in the last 15 minutes. They're not in the middle, and then for an hour and a half, you're figuring out what happened because of that. Like, the big one is there at the end. And so, it's a little different for us. He's building to the big climax, and then he pulls off of it. In fact, I made you a graph today. I know y'all are so, like, pumped about that, right? Look at that. Woo, look at that. That's awesome, all right? Um, I didn't do this in the first service, and I spent the whole service going up, down, sideways. And so, I built for you, this is just for you, special for you, um, a graph. That shows you kind of what's happening here. And here's what I want you to understand. Because I know some of you are like, this is exactly what I always want is for graphs to be used in the sermon. And some of you have turned me off completely. I understand that, all right? So here it is. These visions all relate to one another. So vision one and vision eight are related. The two in the middle of two and three and six and seven are related. And the top of it, the pinnacle, is four and five. Now, let me just walk you through what happens in these visions. At the very top, visions four and five, there are two separate visions. One is that the high priest, the religious leader of the people of God, is covered in absolute filth. That when he's getting ready to serve the people, to ask forgiveness for their sins, he is covered in filth. And God says that I'm going to send something, and in one day, I'm going to clean that up. Chapter 5. Oh, oh, let's go back to the... Don't give away all my answers yet. All right, here we go. It's like the answer key. All right. Chapter 5 is the story of not the high priest, but the governor, and the guy that's going to help to rebuild a temple. And he is saying, what God is saying is that at one point when the high priest is clean, when my people are cleansed, when forgiveness of sin happens, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to establish my presence with my people again. And this is what they were longing for. God, we want to be forgiven of our sins and we want your presence in our place. We want to be forgiven of who you are, of what you've done, of what we've done to you, and we want to have you here among us. God, can we be what we were supposed to be? A forgiven people that is your presence on this earth. 
and we are your representatives here. That's what they wanted. And then he says, but to get there, you have to understand. At vision one, he talks about a peace that is not real. There was a peace that was in the land, but it wasn't real because it wasn't based on their relationship with God. It was based on their own self-righteousness. While this vision over here is about a peace that is forever and good and right and true. Vision 2 and 3 is about God preparing the way for His people by defeating the enemies and protecting His people. Vision 6 and 7 is about God cleansing His people, taking their own sins away. They have been forgiven, but now He's cleansing them and making them right. And so what happens is Zechariah says, choose this day what you're going to do. Because right now there is a false peace about what's happening. But there's coming a day when God is going to defeat the enemies. And he's going to bring forgiveness and his presence back into our world. And he's going to cleanse his people. And that will lead to an eternal, true peace. And so these eight visions in the middle, he says to the people, choose this day whether you're going to follow me or you're going to follow this other way. But if you don't follow me, look what you're giving up. You're exchanging temporary false peace for an eternal, true peace. You're exchanging a life of guilt and shame and distance from me for a life that is forgiven and has God's presence. And what he's saying to them is literally the presence of the gospel in our lives. That we all, without Christ, have this false sense of peace in our lives. That if we don't have Christ, everything seems okay. There may be some problems that we have that get shown to us. But in the midst of that, we must understand that it is a false, temporary peace without Christ. And that God will prepare the way for us, that God has prepared the way in this world, that He has brought His Son into the world, and that His Son will bring forgiveness and the presence of God back into our lives if we will accept what God has done for us, if we will choose this day to follow Christ. And God will cleanse us. We are forgiven of our sins the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, but He doesn't cleanse us in that moment. We are cleansed over time as we are sanctified, as we are made into the likeness of Christ, and then eventually God will make it all all right, and they will have an eternal, true peace that will last forever with him. And so what he's given them is an outline of the gospel, that there are people in our world, there are people in your place that have this temporary false peace that think that they're okay, even though they don't know Jesus. There are people walking the streets of Goodlettsville and Ridgetop and Hendersonville and wherever you live today that think to themselves, man, I am okay. I may have known about church at some time or I've been a few times or my family is a member, but they have a false sense of security because they are without Jesus and without Christ in their lives, it is a temporal false peace. And he says that I am arranging the world to give you an opportunity to hear about the forgiveness and presence that I'm offering. And if you accept that, I will forgive you in a day, in a moment. He says in the third chapter of Zechariah, he says, there will come a moment when a day will happen and all these sins will be forgiven. And immediately before, after that, he starts to talk about the branch that is going to be brought. Well, we're going to talk about the branch in a minute, but you probably know who the branch is. God cleanses and says, I will turn you into the people that I've called you to be. It's never a bad day to do what God's called us to do. And as he does that, he grants us a forgiveness of our sins. He removes it from our life. If we allow him, we'll dig it out of our lives. Sometimes it's painful. And we will move forward with him into the people God's called us to be. And in the end, if you choose wisely in him, you will spend eternity with him. And so it's the gospel presentation. 
But it's also the way for you and I to get back on track with God when we kind of wander away. Because sometimes, at least in my life, I won't speak for you, at least in my life, it seems that it gets easier to drift away from that passionately devoted following of Jesus. Life just happens. Things just come up. Things happen in our schedules. Things happen in our workplace. Things happen. And before long, we are like, man, I I just don't feel like I'm where I was. And we may not feel it for a while. We may have this temporary false peace. And sometimes God in our lives has to arrange the world. When he's talking to the people of Zechariah's day, he says that you got scattered to protect you because I was bringing bringing judgment on those nations and I scattered you to protect you. And sometimes in our lives, God is orchestrating the events of our lives to wake us up, to realize things need to change. And God comes to us in that moment or we realize in our own sinfulness, I have an opportunity right now to experience forgiveness and the presence of God again in my life. And it's not going to solve everything in this moment, but I am going to take it right now. And then as I draw closer to him, he whittles away those parts of my life that needs to be. And I begin to experience the true joy and the true peace that comes from following him. I mean, I don't know where you are today on this oddly shaped triangle. But I know that wherever you are, God offers us the opportunity today trust him and to make the right decision and to move forward chapter 7 and 8 are two sermons and we we really just don't have time to even kind of talk much about those but in the midst of that he basically says here's the reason i punished you and here's the opportunity you have for my grace to be in your life and for you to be set free but then chapters 9 through 14 give us the way all of this is going to be accomplished He looks at the people around and he says, I'm going to give you a picture of the one that is to come. Chapters 9 through 14 are the most quoted parts of the Old Testament in the final week of Jesus' life and crucifixion. And it is obvious at points that he is talking about Jesus. And what God says is, I'm going to give you a chance through the way that I am ruling over this earth, but I am also going to give you a second chance through my Son. Jesus is throughout this book. I mentioned it just a minute ago in chapter 3, verse 8. There was a servant that he calls a branch. And there is other places in the Old Testament where Jesus is referred to as the branch, the root, the one that would come up. Even at the beginning of Zechariah, there is this discussion back and forth between the prophet and what it says is an angel. But the way that it is said in the original language, it makes you think that the angel is not just any angel. It's not just Gabriel. It's not just Michael. But it is what the Old Testament refers to as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, the designated one of the Lord, which in Old Testament scholars have all come to almost agree, at least those that take the Bible very seriously, say that when it talks about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that many times that is a pre-incarnate Christ who is having a conversation. And so what you have here is God the Son having conversations with Zechariah, giving information about what is to come through himself as he becomes one of us. And so, for instance, when you get to chapter 9 through 14, it gives us two visions of one that is to come. 
They both start that judgment is coming and that God will send a shepherd to help his people. In chapters 9 through 11, the shepherd comes and is rejected by his own people. In chapters 12 through 14, the shepherd comes, is pierced is the word it used, and yet becomes victorious in that. So just look, I got four verses I want you to see about the reminder of the one who will make all of this possible. Zechariah 9, 9, for instance, says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. Everybody's shouting. They're excited. He is righteous and victorious. Humble. That is not a word they would have expected. And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Anybody know where this is used in the New Testament? triumphant entry, right? Jesus is getting ready to come to Jerusalem for the last week of his life, and he says, go get me a donkey, and you kind of hear what? And he uses this as an example of that he is this king that is coming. So Jesus rides the donkey into the town of Jerusalem on the last week because he is fulfilling this prophecy. And then it tells us what's going to happen to him. Chapter 12, verse 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me, at me, whom they pierced. So God is declaring through Jesus to Zechariah that they are going to pierce him. The word that is used for the crucifixion, that he, they pierced him. They talk about Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. They will mourn for him as one mourns only child, and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. And then it tells us this in... Zechariah 13, next verse. On that day, the day when he comes, when the king establishes himself, a fountain will be opened for the house of David. It could also be read from the house of David or from the line of David for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. On that day, they're going to open up a fountain. Now we know from Scripture it's a fountain filled with blood. Jesus would die for our sins. And then it tells us in Zechariah 14 that after all of that has happened, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. What that just means is the whole earth is going to be covered. In summer and in winter, it doesn't matter what season it is. And on that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth. The Lord alone and His name alone. So in the beginning of Zechariah, we have this verse where they says, choose this day, choose wisely. He goes through these whole visions to say, this is how God's going to operate. And he's going to do it through a son that is going to establish a kingdom that will never end. Now let me tell you something. I know, listen, I know that's heavy lifting on a sermon. It's a lot. But here's the basic question. It goes back to that first chapter, to that verse that's right there at the beginning that says, the Lord of armies asks you this question. Return to me. Will you return to me? And the book of Zechariah gives us all the reasons we should. Eternal peace, eternal security, eternal hope through Jesus Christ. But the basic question is still the same. Will you return to me? And the question that's before you today is that question. 
Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've never had that moment. And today is the day that Jesus is looking and saying, will you come to me? For some of you in this room, maybe you've gotten caught up in sin that you never intended to get caught up in. It kind of sucked you in. You got in. You stepped in. It has taken you farther and longer and higher and deeper and cost you more than you ever expected. And you want out. And you don't know how to get out. And you hear today that the Lord is offering forgiveness. But you must make that first step of faith to say, God, I am ready and willing and able to return to you. Maybe it's not like a big time sin in your life that you see, but it's just the priority that you've placed on your relationship with the Lord. And today's the day to return. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response after I pray. And I'm just going to ask you, whatever it is the Lord may be leading you to do, that you would simply return. Let's pray together.